Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you're listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net, episode 114, Plotinus the Magician, Ritual Practice and Power in Platonism. As long ago as 1953, Philip Merlin asked the question, was Plotinus a magician, and answered it in the affirmative, only to be himself answered two years later by Arthur Hillary Armstrong with a denial that Plotinus was a magician. More recently, scholars like Zeke Mazur have brought magic back to the table. Mazur argues in a series of two linked articles that many aspects of what some call Plotinus's mysticism have origins in practices commonly described as magical. Obviously, he was walking in a bit of a terminological minefield with that one, but what he meant briefly is that a lot of the things we find in Plotinus's remarkable descriptions of union with the one remind us of things we find in ritual practices like Sustasis, which is found in some magical papyri, in the Chaldean oracles, and other sources. And the debate has reopened to some degree in recent decades as more and more scholars have sought and found evidence of ideas which seem quite, well, theurgic in Plotinus, even though Plotinus isn't a, quote, theurgic Neoplatonist, like Iamblichus and Proclus. Now, we bring this long debate up as some indication of the kind of terrain we're going to be examining in this episode, but we're going to sideline the whole problem of defining magic, mysticism, and so forth, never mind theurgy, simply by asking the question, what role, if any, does ritual play in Plotinus's thought? And because we have Porphyry's Life of Plotinus, we can also ask a very interesting kind of linked question, which is, what role did ritual play in Plotinus's life? As will become clear in this episode, the answers to both of these questions are fascinating, and while we're going to learn a lot about Plotinus, we shall also be delving into some of the most important ancient testimony to ritual practices from a philosophical viewpoint. So do they work? If so, why and how do they work? And is it possible to conjure up your guardian daimon to visible appearance with the help of an Egyptian priest? Spoiler alert, it is possible and they did it. Now we're using the neutral term ritual, not because Plotinus doesn't talk about magic, if by magic we mean to translate Greek terms like goetea, epodai, katedesmos, and yes, even mageia, because Plotinus does indeed discuss all of those terms and more. The long discussion of how these things work in Ennead 4.4, which we shall be getting into in this episode, uses all those terms, and these are the kinds of things that scholars of magic in the Greek context look at. But what about conjuring up Plotinus's daimon? This is something of, that students of magic might also want to look at, because it's the kind of thing you do in some uh, Greek magical papyri, for example. You conjure up a, a god or a daimon to visible appearance. But while we don't have Plotinus commenting directly on this incident, uh, only Porphyry's description of it, and Plotinus's treatise on our allotted guardian spirit, it's safe to say that Plotinus would never have called this goetea or an epode or anything like that. So you see why the blanket approach to ritual 
meets the criteria of what we're interested in a bit better than the term magic. If we talk about both sorcery, goetea, and conjuring up the allotted guardian spirit, which is a klesis, a calling, if we want to talk about both of these things as magic, we are undoubtedly not understanding these different activities the way Plotty understood them, because Plotinus definitely thinks goetea and incantations can function. He thinks they're low-level activities, unworthy of even cheap philosophers, and Plotinus would never agree to take parts in such things. But he did agree, apparently, to take part in the klesis of his daimon. So, first of all, before we get to those juicy anecdotes, what does Plotinus think about what we might call religion, generally? Practical religion. He is not, to be sure, into what will be called theurgy in later Platonism. We recall from episode 75 and 76 that the Chaldean oracles, a set of revealed hexameter verses depicting a curious Platonistic universe and concerned with ritual practices for ascending through that universe, acute listeners will recall that we unfortunately don't really have too much direct evidence for the ritual practices lying behind the text, but that most scholars agree that there were most likely practices involved, including animation of statues as a major emphasis, probably some visionary exercises designed to bring the practitioner's consciousness somewhere else, to attain a body of noetic fire, if Proclus's testimony is right. Now, there are a few passages in Plotinus that remind us of the Chaldean oracles, but acute listeners will also recall that the thought world of the oracles and the thought world of Numenius of Apamea were deeply linked somehow, so that bits of Plotinus that seem to recall the oracles are probably echoes of Numenius. I myself think that this is right. Plotinus just isn't into that sort of revealed literature. This doesn't mean he rejects it. it doesn't mean he thinks it's bad or evil or false or anything like that. We'll get to that in a moment. He, he just doesn't spend a lot of time on it. Plotinus's student Porphyry, by way of contrast, is kind of a lover of religious folklore, much of which he mines for esoteric wisdom about the gods and hidden philosophical teachings and all that good stuff. We've seen this approach in our episodes on various Middle Platonists, and Porphyry is very much in a similar vein. Plotinus really isn't into this. He sometimes allegorizes traditional Greek myths, a bit of Homer here, the myth of Narcissus or the mirror of Dionysus, but he does so with a pretty light touch and is much more interested in myths actually found in Plato, such as Aristophanes' tale of the double humans from the Symposium or the myth of Ur from Plato's Republic. These, for him, are authoritative philosophic texts demanding exegesis. Other stuff from the religious sphere he'll dip into if it's useful as an illustration, but it's really not his bag. Now, Plotinus is actually quite unusual in this, but he's not unique. We have texts by Middle Platonists like Alcinous and Atticus, who are also not particularly interested in religions or myths. They're just doing what they see as Platonist philosophy in a dry, straightforward manner. And this is partly why we haven't talked about them much in, in the podcast. That being said, uh, Alcinous does get into the idea that the higher reaches of reality might be ineffable. And that brings us into the territory of the esoteric, although not the religious. But more on that in the next episode. Now, what about Plotinus's religious life? Was he worshipping the gods, going to temples, stuff like that? We don't know as much as we'd like here, and most of what we know is from Porphyry. The Enneads are full of all sorts of material, which we might want to construe as 
religious. Plotinus likes to use the imagery of the temple with its outer portion open to all and its inner temenos reserved for the ritually pure as an image for the universe with its materialized outer layer and its noetic core, which is available to the philosophic initiate. That's one example. He sometimes likes to compare the philosopher to a priest. That's another example. So there's religious material in there. But if we want to answer questions like, but did he attend sacrifices? We're forced to turn to Porphyry. Luckily, however, chapter 10 of Porphyry's Life of Plotinus is like a condensed nugget of solid gold for anyone interested in ancient ritual practice of a very esoteric nature and in Plotinus's take on it all. This passage is so rich that we shall read it in McKenna's translation, very slightly corrected, and then go into it bit by bit. 10. Among those making profession of philosophy at Rome was one Olympius, an Alexandrian, who had been for a little while the pupil of Ammonius. This man's jealous envy showed itself in continual insolence, and finally he grew so bitter that he even ventured sorcery, seeking to crush Plotinus by star spells. But he found his experiments recoiling upon himself, and he confessed to his associates that Plotinus possessed a mighty soul, so powerful as to be able to hurl every assault back upon those that sought his ruin. Plotinus had felt the operation, and declared that at that moment his limbs were convulsed, and his body shriveling like a money bag pulled tight. Olympias, perhaps perceiving on several attempts that he was endangering himself rather than Plotinus, desisted. In fact, Plotinus possessed by birth something more than is accorded to other men. An Egyptian priest who had arrived in Rome, and through some friend had been presented to the philosopher, became desirous of displaying his powers to him, and he offered to evoke a visible manifestation of Plotinus's presiding spirit. Plotinus readily consented, and the evocation was made in the temple of Isis, the only place, they say, which the Egyptian could find pure in Rome. At the summons, a divinity appeared, not a being of the spirit ranks, and the Egyptian exclaimed, You are singularly graced. The guiding spirit within you is not of the lower degree, but a god. It was not possible, however, to interrogate or even to contemplate this god any further, for the priest's assistant, who had been holding the birds to prevent them flying away, strangled them, whether through jealousy or in terror. Thus, Plotinus had for indwelling spirit a being of the more divine degree, and he kept his own divine spirit unceasingly intent upon that inner presence. It was this preoccupation that led him to write his treatise Upon Our Tutelary Spirit, an essay in the explanation of the differences among spirit guides. Amelius was scrupulous in observing the day of the new moon and other holy days, and once asked Plotinus to join in some such celebration. Plotinus refused. It is for those beings to come to me, not for me to go to them. What was in his mind in so lofty an utterance we could not explain to ourselves, and we dared not ask him. So, there are several pieces of crucial information here that we want to speak about. First of all, the astral magical attack on Plotinus. 
Secondly, the incident at the Iseum at Rome. And thirdly, Plotinus' curious statement that the gods should come to him rather than the other way around. Now, first of all, we know that Porphyry was not present at the calling of Plotinus's allotted daimon. He tells us this is what inspired Plotinus to write the Ennead on our allotted daimon. And we know that this was written before Porphyry got to Rome. Therefore, he wasn't there. Now, was he around for the magical attack by Olympias of Alexandria? We don't actually know. I kind of feel like he wasn't, though. In general, though, we should be aware of Porphyry's agenda in this text. He wants to show that Plotinus is a kind of Platonist saint or holy man, a man with powers beyond those of most humans. So we learn that his tutelary spirit is actually a god, a theos rather than a daimon, and we're given an example of how this elevated nature works in practice. If someone tries to cast a spell on you, in this case, specifically a piece of astral magic, it's just going to bounce off. Compare the stories of Christian saints, when the devil tries to cast spells on them, or the story of Simon Magus in the Acts of the Apostles, the higher divine miracle power basically makes lower magical power crash land horribly, so don't mess with the holy man. This is the kind of pattern. So there was an attempt to blight Plotinus somehow by drawing down negative astral influences to zap him. Is there perhaps anything in the Enneads which might let us know how Plotinus understands this sort of thing to work? We are in luck, gentle listener, when we look especially at Ennead 4.4, Treatise 28, chapters 30 to 44, a very long passage, we learn a lot about incantations, epodai, sorcery, goetea, bindings, katedesmoi, magic, magea, and lots of other stuff, and why they work. We also learn a lot about prayer. And this reminds us that the term magic, as distinct from religion, isn't particularly useful or cogent in this context, because he's talking about prayer as well, and we probably don't want to consider that magic, or do we? Anyway, I'm not interested in the question, I'm just setting it aside. See episode 5 of the podcast for the methodological considerations here if you're interested in that kind of stuff. And it also turns out, for the most part, that Plotinus understands all of these practices, including prayer, to be effective because they are addressed to the visible gods, that is, the stars and planets, so that they function through a kind of, well, scientific causality. He basically has a physics of prayer, if that makes sense. So we are in the realm of science, magic, religion here, if we want to kind of get terminological about it. Here's the point. In the final long passage from 4.4, Plotinus lays out a whole theory of effective ritual. In fact, our best and most in-depth one from antiquity in some ways, at least until Iamblichus. So lovers of magic, or let's say lovers of human action effective in higher realms of reality and causing change here on earth, will want to pay strict attention to this passage from the Enneads. Now what does Plotinus tell us about prayer, because he starts out talking about prayer before he gets to the Goetea and stuff like that. He tells us that we pray to the sun at Ennead 4430, and other men pray to the stars. Now, let's pause there and ask, who are these other men? Uh, some scholars have said, well, they must be Chaldeans, perhaps, some, some kind of astral worshippers. But as we shall see, 
uh, when we turn to the mysteries of Mithras, there were definitely astral worshippers in the Roman Empire. There were Roman astral religions. So he's just talking about people who worship the stars. Um, we don't really know more than that, but there's certainly plenty of them to choose from in the culture in which he's living. But here's the thing. These heavenly bodies, the sun and the stars and everything, do hear and respond to the prayers that we make to them. And what's more, they do so irrespective of the ethical content of the prayer. He refers specifically to love spells in this passage. In other words, evil curse spells, love spells, etc. will work. And they will work because these stellar gods answer them if the prayers are given with the right functional rituals. And later on in, in our passage, he's going to talk about things like the proper words, the proper intonation, the proper posture. So although he doesn't give us really serious amounts of detail, he's definitely talking about doing ritual magic, doing ceremonies. He then gets into the physics of how this works. A strict Aristotelian causal explanation in terms of hot and cold, wet and dry doesn't work, Plotinus tells us. For how could heat in a star lead to jealousy or wickedness in a human being? He doesn't seem to think that that kind of basic physics can really explain how magic can work. He also says that he doesn't see how any star can be seen as being cold um, because he thinks the stars have bodies of fire, elemental fire. So there's also a kind of basic elemental physics reason why this whole schema doesn't make sense to him. And he's clearly addressing some other theory about how astral influences work that is current in his time. We also can't assume, he tells us, that the star gods themselves wish for bad things to happen. The gods are good, and they never design evil. This is a Platonist axiom. So how do incantations work? He rejects one form of physical causality, and he rejects the idea that there might be malevolent stars, star gods. Well, the way it works is the all, the cosmos, is a single living being, as we know from Plato's Timaeus. A very astrologically rich discussion then follows in which it becomes clear that the different figures seen in the heavens, these are the constellations, have different powers, like different limbs of the universal animal. And these powers differ according to where in the universe you are, what kind of thing you are, and so on. I've called this an astrologically rich passage, but maybe this is a misnomer. But Plotinus is showing here what you might call a basic astrological worldview, in that without getting into horoscopes or anything like that, he clearly states that the stars both signify and cause events here on Earth. So there's your basic framework of how astrological prediction and astral magic could, in principle, work. And he mentions specifically that different stellar constellations have particular powers of their own, like different limbs of the universal animal, right? So we're definitely in an astral influences type of cosmos here, where the powers of different planets and stars affect different things differently, but they can also be manipulated. This is the kind of world in which it makes sense to make astral amulets and practice astral medicine. Now, we don't have direct evidence that Plotinus is into either of these two practices, and we'll see why that is, but it's that kind of world. Incidentally, Plotinus does get into astrological theory in a big way in another treatise, and his thinking on the subject is one of our best ancient sources for astrological theory. So good, in fact, that why don't we go ahead and do an episode specifically devoted to Plotinus on astrology and get some expert help. Now, 
how does the causative power of the stars, the way that they emit influences onto the earth here below, function? How does it work? Here Plotinus borrows and adapts the Stoic idea of sympatheia, cosmic sympathy, which you can find out about in our episode on Stoic physics, stating that everything within the cosmos is linked by sympatheia. And so the parts can all affect each other. This makes sense. If everything in the cosmos is a body part of a single living animal, of course everything affects everything else. Just like your liver can affect your heart, or if your head gets cut off, the rest of your body suffers quite direct consequences from that. Moreover, certain postures, intonations, songs or incantations, and other ritual actions can cause special effects by attracting certain astral influences to the bit of the cosmos where the ritualist is standing. This is how love spells and other magical practices work. In other words, Plotinus is adumbrating later theories of natural magic very widespread throughout the medieval and later West using a doctrine of sympathy. So you really can see that that this is a very seminal discussion for the history of Western esotericism. While I doubt Plotinus invented this explanation, it seems to be drawing on a, a wide range of theoretical discussions that are around in his time. Ennead 4.4 is nevertheless the best place or the first place that we find it laid out in such a theoretically rich way. So if you're tracing the development of this sort of theory of magic in the West, this text will be your earliest primary source for a philosophical take on it. As Otto and Stausberg mention in the notes to this text in their source book on magic, we can't really trace a lineage where later theoreticians of magic read this text and commented on it and sort of ran with it. But nevertheless, so many of the ideas present in this text are found in later tradition that we can say that Plotinus is at least an important testimony to a developing theory of an astral magical cosmos wherein, you know, the the magus can, can act using the stellar influences to cause change on Earth. And so he he provides a a very, very good testimony, even if we can't actually say you can go from, you know, Plotinus to Agrippa or someone like that in a kind of uh, chain of transmission of ideas that we can demonstrate. But Plotinus tells us at section 40, lines 18 to 20, if someone put a sorcerer, a goes, outside the all, right, outside of the cosmos, he could not work his spells of attraction nor his curses the apogogais or katedesmois. In other words, and Plotinus makes this point elsewhere, as we shall see, magic only works at the cosmic level. I should say ritual only works at the cosmic level. The higher aspects of the human being are simply immune to it, because how could cosmic influence, the influence of the stars, which seems to be for Plotinus the chief or perhaps the only source of magical power, which actually works, how could this power extend to the noose? Thus, the higher human self, which as we know is noetic, is immune to magic. Nice. Now turning to Ennead 2.9, Treatise 33, also known as Against the Gnostics, we find this critique echoed in the context of these Gnostics. 
one of the many mistakes they make, these opponents of Plotinus. He doesn't call them Gnostics, incidentally, but Porphyry does in his title to the text. We assume the title is from Porphyry. One of the mistakes they make is to subject the higher realities to, well, magic. It's not that magic doesn't work. We've just seen that it does, and even how it does in the earlier tractate 4.4, number 28. So it isn't that it doesn't work. It's just that it doesn't work in the higher levels of reality. So Plotinus basically thinks that these Gnostics are sort of trying to bewitch the noetic world or something like that, and he just thinks this is stupid. One way of looking at this which might be helpful is that Plotinus thinks that applying ideas like sustasis or epodai to the noose would be just as absurd as applying any other lower materialized reality to the noose. To say that these ritual practices work there is like saying that you can hit the noose or saw the noose in half or lick the noose or any other bodily action. It's just a total catastrophic category error. So although we might be tempted to think of things like epodai, incantations, as somehow dealing with higher realities because they deal with invisible realities, right? Things like stellar influence. For Plotinus's explanation of the function of these rituals, these are entirely physical things. These influences are physics, not metaphysics. Magic, for Plotinus, is a branch of applied physics and has no place in the metaphysical world. Incidentally, we have one relevant passage in the Enneads, in the previous tractate, tractate 27, previous to Ennead 4.4 that we've been spending so much time on, where Plotinus talks about the animation of statues and how that works. And this practice, which he attributes to ancients, most likely meaning the priests of his native Egypt who were the ancient world's premier statue animators, is in full accord with the physics of soul in the cosmos that he outlines in 4.4. So quoting McKenna again, this is chapter 11 of and yet four three. I think, therefore, that those ancient sages who sought to secure the presence of divine beings by the erection of shrines and statues showed insight into the nature of the all. They perceived that though this soul is everywhere tractable, its presence will be secured all the more readily when an appropriate receptacle is elaborated, a place especially capable of receiving some portion or phase of it something reproducing it or representing it and serving like a mirror to catch an image of it. End of quote. So here we have a lovely bit of practice illustrated by theory. Porphyry tells us that Plotinus repelled the astral attack through the ontologically elevated power of his allotted guardian. And he tells us that this being is not a daimon, a cosmic entity with a body, but a theos, an immaterial noetic reality without a body, or without a material body of the kind we find in the cosmos. And we have seen the scientific theory behind why this would make such a difference from Plotinus himself. Nice. Now let's turn to the famous seance in the Iseum, as E.R. Dodds, a man who attended a seance or two in his time, influentially called it. An Egyptian priest, Porphyry tells us, came to Rome and offered to call Plotinus's guardian daimon to visible appearance. The verb kaleo here is normal in these contexts, and a klesis is a calling. It's a basic category of working found in many of the Greek magical papyri. 
As far as Porphyry tells us, Plotty readily agrees to this. So, assuming that Porphyry's account is more or less what happened, which I think we can within reason, this is proof, if proof were needed, that Plotinus isn't against rituals, right? He's not, he hasn't got a problem with ritual per se. So, they went to the Iseon, the temple of Isis, which according to the priest is the only pure place in Rome. So, this kind of calling needs to be done in a ritually pure space. A sign, if any were needed, that we are in magic territory or ritual practices of power territory, right? Once in the Iseon, the priest did what he said he would do. Plotinus's daimon appeared, but it wasn't a daimon, it was a theos, a god. So far, so good. Then we get an obscure reference to how the ritual ended. Someone strangled the birds, which he had brought for protection. This was actually the assistant of the priest. No one knows what this means. There's been tons of speculation about the precise ritual thing going on here. But aside from a few pretty likely facts, um, one thing is that Ornis most often, but not necessarily, refers to a domestic fowl. So we're probably looking at chickens or cockerels or similar beings rather than say songbirds and there have been tons of attempts made to make the fact that it's a chicken significant vis-a-vis this or that magical tradition but nothing's really got very far we just don't really know what's going on with these birds and the fact that the reader is clearly meant to understand what strangling the birds means in terms of ritual practice it means that the god is going to disappear despite all this we really don't know what this technical question of ritual practice, which Porphyry assumes is going to be obvious to his readers, is. Nevertheless, the birds being strangled puts an end to what sounds like a very interesting evening. Now, what is going on here? First of all, the idea that everyone has an allotted daimon, their personal guardian, can be found in various places in Plato, like the myth of Ur, and of course, Socrates is famous because he has this daimonion, this personal little daimon that would warn him against bad courses of action. The idea of the guardian daimon is pretty well attested in other Platonist writings as well, and indeed seems to have been a reasonably widespread belief in later antiquity more generally, judging from our fragmentary sources. Maybe something like the idea of guardian angels today. Lots of people believe in them. You don't have to be a Catholic theologian or whatever to believe in them. Anyway, that's the daimon part. But what about the god? Well, I think, again, it's clear that Porphyry's point is that Plotinus's soul was such that he had an immense spiritual authority, greater than that of the average being. What's fascinating is that the results of the magical operation were in agreement with Porphyry's high estimation of his master's spiritual rank. And assuming that this isn't just made-up stuff, that this actually happened in some form, this will have been very powerful testimony from a late antique perspective. When people were thinking about Plotinus and the kind of man he was and how authoritative he was as a philosopher, they're going to say, dang, he's the guy whose daimon was a god. And we have some interesting exterior testimony to this uh, belief from the 4th century Roman historian Ammianus Marcellinus. Ammianus wrote a massive history of the Roman Empire in its later days, which we shall be quoting a lot because it's our best single source for the life of the Emperor Julian, whom we shall be covering in the podcast. Now, 
Ammianus preserves a wonderful bit of lore about powerful guardian spirits in which Plotinus figures. So we'll just quote it here as it calls back to many other figures we've discussed in the podcast so far. So this is Ammianus in the Loeb translation by Rolf. Quote, From the immortal poems of Homer, we are given to understand that it was not the gods of heaven that spoke with brave men and stood by them or aided them as they fought, but that guardian spirits attended them. This is Daimones, right? So this is a late antique rereading of the Homeric poems so that you don't actually have the gods who are in a late antique perspective seen as very elevated beings who don't mess about with mortals, right? But you can just fill their place with Daimones and then the whole thing works. Back to our quote. And through reliance upon their special support, it is said that Pythagoras, Socrates, and Numa Pompilius became famous. Also the earlier Scipio and, as some believe, Marius and Octavianus, who first had the title of Augustus conferred upon him. And Hermes Trismegistus, Apollonius of Tiana, and Plotinus who ventured to discourse on this mystic theme and to present a profound discussion of the question by what elements these spirits are linked with men's souls and taking them to their bosoms, as it were, protect them as long as possible and give them higher instruction if they perceive that they are pure and kept from the pollution of sin through association with an immaculate body. End of quote. Nice. Now, if we only had Apollonius's treatise on the guardian daimon, but... We have Plotinus on the allotted daimon, and we have the, some of the Hermetica, so two out of three ain't bad. It, this, this quote is interesting as it doesn't come from a philosopher, per se, but a military historian who is nevertheless well-read and Hellenized. So it gives us a nice snapshot into the kinds of beliefs about the daimons that were prevalent in late antiquity. And that Plotinus has a reputation about a hundred years after he died for having been especially powerful in the daimon uh, side of things. Back to the seance, I think that this incident gives us some insight into why Plotinus would say, they ought to come to me, not I to them, which was the final statement of our citation from Porphyry. There's no clear consensus here in the scholarship, but it seems pretty straightforward to me, actually. First of all, Emilius, Plotinus's chief student, and Porphyry is always... Um, up for an opportunity to throw a bit of shade at Emilius. So he describes him here as becoming philothutos. Now, McKenna translates this as scrupulous in observing the day of the new moon and other holy days. But philothutos is actually a bit of an insult. It's something like overly religious or a bit of a god-botherer, something along those lines. While no one seriously thinks that Plotinus was somehow anti ritual or anti-traditional cult. He's not a god-botherer. And maybe this is the point here, right? If Porphyry isn't just being a dickhead, and Emilius really was sort of crossing some kind of unspoken line of decorum in going to all these cultic festivals and whatnot, then we might want to imagine Plotinus's reaction as being something like a low church Anglican tutting at a high church Anglican. So it's not a serious problem. There's no kind of like you are committing a sin. It's just like, oh, come on, you don't have to go to all these bloody sacrifices and festivals. It's not what we do as philosophers. It's a kind of like a style decorum side of thing. That's my interpretation anyway. And we know that Plotinus doesn't need to go to them. So who are they? Well, Porphyry mentions the new moon. 
we need look no further than the text we've already discussed here, right? Plotinus, by everyone's account, is established in the Noetic. And his daimon, from Porphyry's account, is a Noetic god. Porphyry doesn't say Noetic, but that's what a god is for Plotinus. The gods, in the true sense of the term, are Noetic beings. He sometimes will call the stars gods following Plato, but really when he says theos, he means a Noetic reality. Now the moon is a cosmic god, or even daimon maybe. Plotinus is just above the moon, as it were. He is himself of a higher ontological rank than the heavenly visible gods. Pretty simple. Now Porphyry suggests that he and his fellow students were stunned into silence by this statement. And so it would seem that Porphyry was actually present for this particular anecdote, the one about the festival of the new moon and Plotinus saying, I don't have to go to them, they have to come to me. So why is this shocking? Why would they be stunned? Well, obviously, this could be a bit of um, theater on Porphyry's part, um, just to make Plotinus' statement kind of stand out as a statement of authoritative spiritual power. But he might have been a bit shocked as well, in reality. And I think if he, if he was shocked, he's not shocked that Plotinus is claiming divinity or divine status, right? Every Platonist at least hopes to be able to claim divinity in a certain sense, in that every Platonist is attempting to assimilate to the divine as far as possible, following Plato's Theaetetus. And in traditional Greco-Roman religion, and indeed magical practices as preserved in the Greek magical papyri, or the Hermetica for that matter, attaining to a divine rank or divine ontological status is a praiseworthy, and if not exactly normal, certainly well-known religious goal, right? The shocking bit is maybe how Plotinus is thus at least implying that he can dispense with temple-based ritual observances because of his attaining to this high state of divinity. Um, I kind of feel like Porphyry, as a lover of religions, maybe thinks that this is going too far. At any rate, I would say Plotinus thinks that the true philosopher doesn't really need to mess much with rituals. And as we shall see when we discuss the great theurgy debate... Porphyry, too, thinks the philosopher can dispense with many low superstitious rituals, or rituals that he thinks are low and superstitious, but in general is attached to many aspects of ritual practice that I think Plotinus reckons are unnecessary. And, of course, when we get to the great theurgy debate, we shall see that this not particularly ritualistic stance of Plotinus's and the theory behind it, the physics and metaphysics that justify this stance, will come under sustained and concerted attack from thinkers like Iamblichus. And Proclus won't bother attacking Plotinus so much, he will just consider Plotinus's view as having been refuted by Iamblichus. So that brings us to the end of our episode, and it's time, therefore, to kill the chickens. Until next time, stay SO. <laughs>